The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you would now take your Bibles and we'll turn back to Paul's first epistle to Timothy again today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we will pick up today at verse 3, and I'll be reading verses 3 to 7, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes to Timothy, verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so thankful for the privilege we have this morning to open up the Holy Scriptures because we are convinced, we know and believe that these are not merely the words of men, but that they are the inspired words of God spoken to us through your Apostle. And so as we come, we pray you would help us to come with an appropriate reverence for your word, to stir ourselves up in our minds, our hearts, to hearken, to listen to your word. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us faith to believe your word and grace to, uh, Lord, conform our thinking and our attitudes and our lives uh, to the teaching of your word. May your word today continue that ongoing work of washing and sanctifying this church through the ministry of the word. And we pray also, Lord, that you would be merciful to those among us who are outside of Christ, that you would draw them by your spirit, awaken them to their great need, and cause them to see that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior for sinners who cry to him for mercy. And it is in his name we pray, amen. Someone has said that uh, there is a threefold task uh, in the gospel ministry when it comes to the proclamation of God's word. One, that we must proclaim and enforce God's holy law. Two, we must proclaim God's holy gospel. And three, we must lift up our voices and declare the plain warning of our Savior to beware of false prophets. And certainly it's true that warning people about false teachers and about false teaching is a very important part of a faithful biblical ministry. While Satan has many weapons at hand to wreak havoc in the church and to destroy the souls of men, it could be argued that uh, false teachers are the greatest weapon of all. It's quite amazing how much attention is given to false prophets and false teachers throughout the Old Testament and also throughout the New Testament. Well, as we return this morning to our study of Paul's first epistle to Timothy, uh, which we began last week, I remind you that Paul has left for Macedonia and he's left Timothy behind in Ephesus to instruct God's people there and to set things in order in the church. Now, 
The precise manner in which the church in Ephesus first began is a bit uncertain, but we know from the book of Acts that Paul was very much involved in shaping it. At one point, he had had stopped there briefly, dropping off Priscilla and Aquila, while he went on quickly on his way to Antioch. And the next time he's there, he finds a small group of believers. And he stays this time in Ephesus preaching the gospel for quite a long time. He's there preaching the gospel, teaching the church for a a period of roughly three years. And his ministry was amazingly blessed. There was a great awakening in Ephesus. People who had been given over, we read about this in the book of Acts, people who had been given over to idolatry were converted to faith in Christ. Many who were engaged in the occult had been converted and brought their occultic books together and piled them all up and burned them in the sight of all. And all of this eventually resulted in the firm establishment of a thriving church and a beachhead for the gospel in what was the most important city of the Roman province of Asia. But you may remember that some years later, while traveling on his way to Jerusalem, Paul made a brief stop in Miletus, which was very close to Ephesus. And while he was there, he called the elders of the Ephesian church to come to him for a farewell address. And in that address, he gave them a very sobering warning. Uh, This address to the Ephesian elders is found in Acts 20, verses 25 to 21. And in one part of that address, Paul said this, Therefore, take heed to yourselves. He's talking to the elders of the church there. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the flock, uh, the, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Well, here we are now, several years after that. And as Paul writes this first letter to Timothy, it is clear that Paul's apostolic premonition or prophecy has sadly proved to be true. Trouble has come to the church from within the very church itself. Timothy has been left there as Paul's apostolic representative to address these problems, to instruct God's people in sound doctrine, to set things in order. But the first thing Paul addresses in this letter is this problem of false teachers in the church. And this is something he'll return to from time to time throughout this letter. So our focus this morning, God willing, will be verses 3 to 7, where these false teachers are first introduced to us. So as we begin to look at the text, notice we have, first of all, an urgent directive to Timothy. An urgent directive to Timothy. Now normally, in Paul's epistles, after the typical salutation in which he identifies himself as the author, identifies the recipients of the letter, gives a greeting, he then follows with some words of thanksgiving. But here in 1 Timothy, he skips to thanksgiving, and he gets right down to business, the business at hand. Now, there are only three others of Paul's letters in which he does that, this one, Titus and Galatians, and what all three have in common is that Paul moves immediately from the greeting to address the problem of false teaching. There's an urgency here. 
in the way Paul begins this letter, picking up now at verse 3. As I urge you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. This directive given to Timothy is a twofold directive. Remain in Ephesus, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So first, he is to remain in Ephesus. He is there in Ephesus, and Paul writes to him, charging him, urging him to remain there. Stay there, Timothy. Don't run away from the problems in the church. You must deal with this problem. Don't run from it. There is work there in Ephesus that needs to be done. Remain in Ephesus, Timothy. Stick to your post. It's a good reminder, brothers and sisters, to stick to your post. Whatever form of Christian service you may be involved in, to stick to your post unless there is good, uh, clear reason to make a change. It's not saying it's always wrong for a Christian to, um, uh, or a minister of the gospel to move from one place to another. Of course not. Sometimes that is good. Sometimes it's good for a number of reasons or for the larger interests of the kingdom. But it should never be done in haste and without careful prayer and never merely or only to run away from problems or to avoid challenges. Now, Timothy is to remain in Ephesus. So in this twofold directive, he, he's urged by Paul to remain in Ephesus. And for what purpose? What is one of the reasons that he's to remain there? Secondly, it says in order to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. In other words, Timothy is to confront these false teachers. Not an easy thing to do, but this is what Timothy is called to do. He's to order them with the authority invested in him as a minister of the gospel to teach no other doctrine. Now, the word Paul uses here to describe this, this, this doctrine, it's an interesting word. In fact, it appears to be a word that Paul himself coined. He sometimes does that. It, it occurs only twice in the New Testament, both times in 1 Timothy, and there's no record of this word that anyone's ever found any time before that. And the Greek word is heterodidaskalein, different or other teaching. The prefix hetero or hetero speaks of that which is different. You notice he doesn't say demonic, evil, doesn't use the word false. He just says other, other doctrine. It's of a different kind, different type. Now there's another Greek word which describes uh, another of a similar kind, but this word means a different kind. Now, Paul uses a, a very similar word when referring to the Galatian heresy. He calls it a different gospel or another gospel. Different doctrine, other doctrine. This is doctrine other than true and apostolic gospel doctrine. Now, the implication of these words, I think, should be very hard for us to miss. Namely, that there is such a thing as true and sound doctrine. True biblical gospel doctrine that can be defined and identified in that Paul and Timothy knew and that the church should know. Think about it. If there is other doctrine, other doctrine that is not to be taught, it is other than what? Well, it's something other than sound doctrine. That is to be taught. And if you're going to be able to identify doctrines 
uh, that are other, we have to know what the correct doctrines are. Indeed, one thing that's very clear in the New Testament is there is a core of apostolic doctrine and teaching by which true and biblical Christianity is defined. And it has always been the same, and it will always be the same in all places and for all times. For example, there are the many references in the New Testament to what is called the faith. Now, the word faith, as you know, is sometimes used to describe the act of believing or the internal spiritual grace of faith. But it's often used to refer to the the sum of Christian doctrine, what is to be believed. Very often, when the article the is before the word, the context is very clear that it's not talking about the act of believing. It's talking about the sum of Christian teaching, the faith. The Christian faith. Now, this language is used very often in the New Testament. In fact, several times it's used here in the first epistle of Timothy. Down in verse 19 of this first chapter, Paul writes, having faith. Now, there he's talking about the internal grace of faith. Having faith in a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith. There he's talking about the sum of what it is that is to be believed. They have turned away from the faith and have suffered shipwreck. 1 Timothy 3, 9, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. 1 Timothy 4, 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith. They have strayed from the body of truth that we are to believe. We also see the word truth with the article used this way uh, often too, the truth. There is a body of truth God's people should know and believe. There's also the use of the word, uh, the terms didache or didaskalia, referring to doctrine or the teaching or what is taught. And you'll see this in context that are exhorting God's people to reject false doctrine or to embrace sound doctrine. And there are many texts in the New Testament that speak of the importance of rejecting false doctrines and embracing sound doctrines. And again, there are several here in 1 Timothy, our text this morning. Again, at the end of verses uh, 10 and in verse 11, Paul makes reference to any other thing, he says, that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Chapter 4, verse 16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Chapter 6, verse 3, warns about anyone, he said, Paul says, who does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine that accords with godliness. There's also the description that's given of sound teaching as a trust that has been committed to the church and to his teachers. Uh, teachers, Just as Paul said in the, one of the verses I quoted earlier, he talks about this has been committed to my trust. First Timothy 6.20, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Second Timothy 2.2, 2, he says, the things which you have heard 
from, from me among many witnesses, Timothy, you are to commit that, entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 1, 13 to 14. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. That good thing, that pattern of sound words that was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And the Greek word there translated pattern, it's a word that means outline or sketch or pattern. And the assumption in that word is that there is an outline, a summary, a pattern of sound teaching that is to be known and is to be kept. The sum of apostolic teaching as the whole forms the pattern, the standard of sound doctrine. And we see here in our text... That the teaching of other doctrine, whether it be new and novel teaching or teachings that deviate from that standard, are not to be tolerated in the church. Now, as many of you know, there's a common attitude out there today that is negative about this whole matter of doctrine. Oh, well, we're not interested in all of this talk about doctrine. You may have heard someone say something like this. Well, I'm not really interested in, in your doctrine. I just want to love Jesus and, and love people. And, or I know at your church there's a lot of emphasis on doctrine. But at our church, we're just concerned about loving Christ. And the impression is almost given that doctrine is something bad, something to be avoided, something that is opposed to love. When in fact, as we're going to see, Paul's going to tell us just the opposite in our passage when he says in verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment, the instruction is love. They're not opposites of one another. But this is the kind of thing you often hear. Well, here's a good response for the next time somebody says something like that to you. Oh, I'm just not into all of this doctrine stuff. I I just try to focus on loving Jesus. You say, okay, who is Jesus? Well, who is Jesus? You see, the minute you ask that question, you're in the realm of doctrine. A Jehovah's Witness might say, I love Jesus, but the Jesus he loves is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not God the Son in human flesh, the second person of the blessed Trinity. Someone else says, oh, I believe that the Bible is the word of God, and that's enough. I have no creed but the Bible. Okay, but here's a question for you. What does the Bible teach? Again, that brings us into the realm of doctrine. What does it teach about God, about creation, about man, about the fall, about sin, about Christ, about salvation, about the Christian life, about the church? about the end. You see, the Bible presents doctrine. Doctrine to be gathered and taught from the sum of all that the Bible has to say about each of these subjects. And if you don't care about doctrine, my friend, you're in grave danger. You're in great danger of being led astray and deceived. Sound doctrine will guard you against the many dangerous errors that are swirling around today, even in the churches. It puts spiritual backbone into God's people. It produces stability and maturity. It will sustain your faith in the times of painful trial that will come upon all of us at different times in our lives and in the face of that last great enemy, the enemy of death. And Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 16, 
of his second epistle to Timothy that false doctrine leads to ungodliness. If you ever read some of the polls that come out concerning professing Christians in our country, it's quite shocking. They tell us that evangelical Christians in America today live no differently than unbelievers do. They commit the same sins, have the same divorce rate, live the same lifestyles, and so on. And let me just hasten to say that I take those polls with a grain of salt. I don't believe for one moment that true Christians in America live no differently from the world. You have to ask the question, how do the pollsters define a Christian? What is a Christian? And by the way, that brings us back into the realm of doctrine. How does the Bible define a Christian? But then something else that puts those polls in a proper perspective is when you read what so many of these professing Christians actually believe as you read these polls. What they believe about God and about salvation and about the Bible and about heaven and about hell and so on. And when you see the crazy unbiblical things that so many people who claim to be Christians today believe, the way they live is not so shocking after all. Because false doctrine leads to ungodliness and to a flighty, unstable, confused brand of false Christianity that leads people to hell and brings great reproach upon Christ. Well, after this urgent directive to Timothy concerning those teaching other doctrine, these false teachers, we then have, secondly, a very interesting description of them. And notice with me several things here. First of all, their identity. Their identity. Who are they? Well, the text is not very specific. Paul just says that you may charge some or certain persons. They're left mostly unnamed, uh, but the people in the church apparently knew who they were. And I said mostly unnamed because Paul does mention two men down in verse 20 that he had excommunicated. As an apostle, he had excommunicated them from the church. Men, he says, who concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, and their names are actually mentioned there, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus is mentioned again in 2 Timothy, and it seems that these two men were among those who were teaching other doctrine. And we learn in 2 Timothy that Hymenaeus certainly was doing that. Now these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, may have been the worst representatives of these false teachers, perhaps the ringleaders, for they've already been excommunicated. But there must have been others, perhaps not as far gone yet, because Timothy is charged with confronting certain ones who were still in the church. Now, the group is not large. It's certain persons, some, not many. Now, commentators, some commentators make the case that these false teachers were, in fact, from among the elders in the church. It's pointed out that this is in line with what Paul warned would happen in his address to the Ephesian elders. You remember in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, when he said, Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It's also pointed out that whoever these men were or are, they, they presumed to be teachers of the church, which was a function of the elders. And then there's the emphasis in this letter on the qualifications for elders in chapter 3 and on the discipline of elders who are sinning in chapter 5. 
So I think it very well may be that these false teachers were among those very men who served on the eldership of the church. But certainly whoever they were, they were not from without, but from within the church itself. Now I think it's worth pausing here for a moment. Brothers and sisters, false teachers are not always out there, outside the Christian church or the Christian churches in some kind of cult or some other religion. They're often found in the churches, even in evangelical churches. Jesus describes false teachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing. That is, they outwardly appear to be true shepherds. They, they, they profess to be, they outwardly appear to be true sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. And personally, I would just say that I believe the greatest danger that we face today is not from those who are outside the churches, but from false teachers who are within the churches. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 2.1, But there were also false prophets among the people, speaking of God's old covenant people. Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Notice he says there will be false teachers among you. These are false teachers who are within the church or the churches. The Apostle Jude describes certain men who have crept in unnoticed. And listen, dear people, I, I trust I don't really have to say this, but to be safe, I will. The fact that a man comes to you in this pulpit or in another pulpit or on the television or on the radio or on the internet or on podcasts and he's touted as a minister of Jesus Christ and claims to believe and to preach the gospel and that does not mean that what he teaches is right and safe for your soul. He may be a false teacher. He may seem to be very sincere a very sincere man, but you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. He may speak with great confidence. That was one of the things that marked these, t- these false teachers. Paul says that, he says, neither, end of verse 7, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And the idea there is the things that they confidently affirm. These men spoke with great boldness. They seemed to know what they were talking about. You know, the guy said, well, you know, the man seemed like he really knew what he was talking about. Well, these guys seemed like they knew what they were talking about. They, they were very bold. They confidently affirmed their false teaching. That's often the case with false teachers. Sometimes that's what attracts people to them. People sometimes are attracted to somebody who's very dogmatic and very outspoken and seems very confident in what they're saying. And yet, as Paul says here, they had no clue what it was they were really talking about. But they said it very confidently, even though it was, it was error. So a man may seem to be very sincere, very confident, still be a false teacher. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we must be discerning. We must know the truth. That's why you need to know your Bible, my dear friend. That's why you need to seek to be well-grounded in the sound doctrines of the Scripture and historic Christianity, so you won't be so naive and gullible as to think that simply because a man quotes a lot of Bible verses and talks about Jesus and he's a very gifted public speaker, that he's a true man of God, and then be deceived by him. 
the identity of these false teachers. But then secondly, what about the nature of their teaching? What exactly were these men teaching, these particular false teachers? What were they teaching? Well, again, we are given a lot of details, but we are given some information and some very interesting clues. Look at verse 4. Paul says, charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Fables or myths, the Greek word is mythos, myths, fables, legends, myths and endless genealogies. Now that language has caused some to believe that what was infecting the church is a form of Gnostic philosophy. And I'll not get into explaining all that right now, maybe later, but uh, the full-blown Gnosticism comes a bit later. Uh, there, there are indications there was, it, was, it, it was earlier than people, scholars originally thought that there was more of a, at least a, a beginning influence of that kind of thinking that was already beginning to happen. Streams of thought feeding this that were already around in the Greco-Roman world. And there are indications later that these false teachers may indeed have been marked by certain Gnostic tendencies. Or we could say this way, we could say certain influences streaming from Greek philosophy. For example, in chapter 4, Paul warns about those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. Presumably talking about these same people, a kind of asceticism that's reminiscent of a tendency in some Greek philosophy to view the material and matter as, as irrelevant or as evil. Also, he speaks of those who promote what is, he says is falsely called knowledge in chapter 6. However, there are clear indications in the text and elsewhere that this false teaching also and mainly had Jewish connections. He describes these teachers in verse 7 as desiring to be teachers of the law. And as he goes on through the passage, clear he's talking about the Mosaic law. They were designed to be teachers of the law. They were driven by ambition to be looked up to as teachers of the law. And in Titus 1.4, Titus is told to instruct believers in Crete not to give heed to fables, mythos, but he adds something there. Not to give heed to Jewish fables. And all of this indicates that there was a strong Jewish influence in this false teaching. In fact, there are two ancient Jewish texts that shed further light on this. One is entitled the Book of Jubilees. It was written in 125 B.C. Another was written just after this in A.D. 70. It's called the Biblical Antiquities of Philo. But these help us to see the kind of Jewish myths and genealogies that were floating around in those days. And these books, they include a retelling of the Old Testament story from a a Pharisaic point of view. And they include these extended, far-fetched genealogies. Stott tells us, quoting him, that both books are biased rewrites of a section of Old Testament history Both stress the indestructibility of Israel and of the law. And both embellish their stories with fanciful additions. The author of the biblical antiquity supplements the biblical narrative by means of these fabulous genealogies which occupy four chapters in the book. Similarly, the book of Jubilees supplies us 
with the names of all the children of Adam and Eve, of Enoch's family, of Noah's predecessors and descendants, and of the 70 people who went down to Egypt. Well, it may very well be that it was this kind of speculative and fanciful literature and teaching or something similar to it that Paul is describing when he speaks of fables and endless genealogies. And of those, verse 6, who have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things they so confidently affirm. Now, later in chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, probably referring to these same false teachers, Paul describes them as proud, knowing nothing, but obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men. Chapter 6, verse 20, profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So what, whatever the precise details of what these false teachers were teaching, it's safe to say that it included and involved an obsession with so-called hidden truths supposedly found in Jewish myths and genealogies. It involved extra-biblical novelties in that it involved religious and philosophical speculations that drew people away from the gospel into what Paul calls, verse 6, idle talk. Or it could be translated, empty discussions. I think that's what you'll find in the ESV. Now let me say here that the modern church faces the same danger today. This is so relevant, brothers and sisters. So, so relevant. Kent Hughes in his commentary mentions, for example, the incredible distortions that the number 666 has undergone to spell out the name of every international villain from Caesar to Napoleon to Hitler to Stalin. And I think we could add Saddam Hussein as well. People get hung up with this kind of stuff. Riken mentions the Bible Code. You remember that? Several years ago, it was a best-selling book in America. It's a fanciful interpretation of the Old Testament that claims that an Israeli mathematician, Dr. Elijahu Rips, has decoded the Bible with a computer formula, unlocking 3,000-year-old prophecies of events such as the Kennedy assassination, the election of Bill Clinton, the Holocaust, the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, the moon landing, and so on. There's always stuff like this popping up. There's the Apocrypha that some people regard as sacred scripture. Another example is the so-called Gospel of Thomas. If you go in a bookstore, you'll probably see copies of the Gospel of Thomas. It was actually compiled in Egypt somewhere between A.D. 150 and A.D. 350. But it claims to contain 120, quote, secret words of the living Jesus. Now, a few things in it, in it mirror the biblical gospels, the rest are all myths. The people fall for it. And they become obsessed with stuff like this. The best-selling book, The Da Vinci Code, claiming to provide secret knowledge about Jesus, and all of it is based on a hodgepodge of discredited sources and historical speculations. Mormonism, which claims to be Christian. 
and apparently claims to be the fastest growing religion in the world. If you know anything about it, it involves teaching that involves myths, and there's this tremendous attention that is given to genealogies. It just, it, when you read this, you can't help but think about Mormonism. Joseph Smith Jr. claimed that an angel named Moroni had appeared by his bedside. The visitor said he was the son of Mormon, the departed leader of an American race known as Nephites. Supposedly two Middle Eastern peoples had immigrated to the Americas between 600 B.C. and 400 A.D. And the story of these tribes and the eventual battle that they supposedly had in what is now New York State in A.D. 423... This battle between the Nephites and the Lamanites was written, it's claimed, on tablets of gold. And these were discovered by Joseph Smith, who copied them down. Conveniently, the originals disappeared. When he had finished this, myths and genealogies. A good deal of Roman Catholic doctrine is based on nothing better than myths. Doctrines that are nowhere found in scripture, doctrines like purgatory, the perpetual virginity of Mary, praying to Mary, the veneration of the saints, the supreme authority of the Pope, all of that and more from tradition, not the Bible. This can happen with philosophy. Christians, even among Christians, useless discussions and debates that only promote strife and are based on nothing but philosophical speculations. Another place, brothers and sisters, where there's a lot of meaningless talk is on the internet and in social media. How common it is for people to engage in fruitless, unproductive, soundbite, one-upmanship debates on Facebook about this or that topic, sometimes very difficult, hair-splitting theological issues that really would require quite a bit of time and writing and effort and careful communication to be able to discuss in a meaningful way, and yet this kinds of discussions and arguments and debates, and it goes on, and it's absolutely to no profit. It's a complete waste of time. But people spend hours doing this and become obsessed with this kind of thing. My friend, don't get your theology from TikTok. <laughs> it happens in the seminary context. Theological scholars can become tempted. You know what's, what the temptation is in that context? The quest for novelty. They can become tempted, driven by the academic quest for novelty, they desire to say something and to come up with something new that no one else has ever said before. I think I remember Ted Donnelly putting, uh, saying something like this to, on this point. He said, you know, no one ever got, uh, you know, their doctorate by a doctoral dissertation that said Calvin got it right. The pressure is to come up with something new, right? That no one's thought about. And, there, and that can be dangerous. It can be driven by pride, the thirst for notoriety, and it often leads to serious errors and heresies that undermine the gospel. This can happen with regard to historical theology, the study of the history of theology and of theologians and so forth. And, you know, men can get all caught up in debating what this particular theologian taught. No, this is what he taught. No, this, and, you know, in my thinking, you take someone 
We were talking about Thomas Aquinas, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's benefit from Thomas Aquinas, but we were talking about this in our church history class. You know, when you take a guy, and you've got how, how many, however many, you know, PhDs who devoted their life to studying Thomas Aquinas, and they still can't agree on what he actually taught. And who knows how many doctoral dissertations have been written. I'm not saying it's interesting, it's intellectually stimulating. I'm not saying there's no profit to it at all, but it can just be going round and around and around and around and around. It gets nowhere. That's really profitable for the church of Jesus Christ. And yet men get into this, and then they get angry with one another, and they divide over one another into different camps of Christians and groups who are this way, think this way about this historical thing or this way. It's the very kind of thing Paul's talking about. Brothers and sisters, let us beware of these things. Beware of majoring on the minors. Beware of being taken in by any teaching that claims to provide some new and exciting insight. Beware of becoming obsessed with fruitless speculations that will shrivel up your soul and draw your heart away from Christ and what really matters, for this is precisely what these kinds of things do, as Paul alludes not only to the identity of these false teachers and the nature of their teaching. Thirdly, he describes the effects of it. First, what they do. Look at verse 4. Such things cause or such things promote disputes. Or as the ESV has it, speculations. Not sound, helpful scripturally grounded, faith-producing conclusions, but uncertain and useless speculations. Verse 6, it leads to idle talk, or it could be translated empty discussion. It never gets anywhere. It's useless going around and around discussing and speculating and debating about this or that and never getting anywhere useful. As Paul describes it in 2 Timothy 3, 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's just the enjoyment of the learning. The enjoyment of the stimulation of considering these interesting myths and genealogies and this teaching and that teaching and discussing them and debating them. Always learning, but never coming to conclusions never coming to the knowledge of the truth, God's truth in his word, the truth of the gospel. This was the effect of their false teaching. This is what it did. And then Paul also describes what it did not do. Notice the language at the end of verse 4. He says, which causes disputes. That's what it did. But here's what it doesn't do. Rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the word translated godly is the genitive theu. The of God edification. Now, what, what's Paul talking about here? Where you're going to have to think with me a minute here. There's a textual variant. Some texts have the Greek word oikodomian, which speaks of a building, building up, edification. That's reflected in the translation I'm reading from, the New King James. Some texts have oikonomian. Now, do you see they sound very much alike? Because there's only one letter difference in the Greek. Oikodomian, oikonomian. One letter is different. 
Well, everyone that I have read on this has pointed out that the overwhelming weight of the Greek texts available support the second rendering. And you'll see that reflected, for example, in the ESV and the NAS and other modern translations. It's a word that means administration. Maybe you have stewardship in the English translation you're reading. Administration, management, stewardship, or plan. And when that word is used in a more theological manner, it speaks of the order or the arrangement by which God brings redemption through Jesus Christ or the human responsibility to pass on that administration, that message of salvation. For example, this is the very word that Paul uses in Ephesians 3, 2, when he writes, if you have heard of the dispensation, that's our word there, of the grace of God that was given to me. He uses it in Ephesians 1.10 to refer to God's redemption plan in Jesus Christ. And therefore, I think the Net Bible really nails it when he translates it this way. Such things promote useless speculations rather than God's redemptive plan in faith, or that operates in the sphere of faith or by faith. The of God administration, God's redemptive plan that is carried out within the sphere of faith, that is believing confidence in the gospel. My dear friends, God has a plan. He has something that he's doing in the world. He has a plan of salvation, the blessings of which are not experienced and are not promoted by useless speculations, but in or by faith. Believing in that plan and in its message. Well, one of the marks of this other doctrine is that while it produced a lot of speculation and a lot of interesting, uh, empty discussion, perhaps some of it quite fascinating and interesting, it was not promoting God's plan of redemption. God's work of saving sinners by faith in Christ. It was not promoting God's objectives. The dispensation of His grace by the administration of the gospel to the nations. That's what God's doing. Saving sinners from sin and hell. Reconciling them to himself. His plan of conforming them to the image of his son and building them up in their most holy faith and preserving them in faith until the last day when there will be a great multitude no man can number from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue praising and enjoying him in the new heavens and upon the new earth. That's what God's doing, my dear friends. This is God's redemption plan. But the foolish myths and endless genealogies that mark these false teachers wasn't promoting that. It was only promoting useless speculations, disputes, and empty discussions. And let us learn from this. Here's one of the tests, okay? Here's one of the tests that you can apply to any teaching. The latest theological fad on the internet the latest hot topic of debate, the new popular podcast, the new cool preacher that everybody's talking about. Ask yourself, whoever or whatever it is, does it promote the advancement of God's redemptive plan through faith? Or does it promote nothing but novelty and debates and speculations that in the end accomplish absolutely nothing of any real and eternal value. Do you see how practical this God's word is, this passage in 1 Timothy really is? How relevant it is to our day? 
This leads to the last thing I want us to see in our text. We have an urgent directive to Timothy concerning false teachers, an interesting description of these particular false teachers, their identity, the nature of their teaching, and its negative effects. But then Paul also sets before us thirdly and finally the contrasting aim and result of a sound and gospel ministry. Now our time is almost gone, so I have to be very brief here. Look at verse 5. In contrast to the false teaching which did not promote God's administration, now he makes a contrast, verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Now, some have thought that by commandment, he's referring to God's law, since he refers in verse 7 to those desiring to be teachers of the law, but that's not really correct. The word he uses here is a verb. It's the verb para angelias, a form of the same verb translated charge up in verse 3. He uses this verb again in verse 18 to refer to the charge that's committed to Timothy as a minister and preacher of the gospel. And that's the idea here. This is to be the goal of a biblical ministry, of Timothy's ministry, the aim of the instruction, it can be translated. In contrast to useless speculations and disputes, the aim and result of faithful gospel instruction, Timothy, faithful gospel preaching is this, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. You know, the teaching of these false teachers produced nothing but strife and wranglings, as Paul describes it later, and profitless dispute, dispute, not love. It wasn't from a pure heart, but was driven by selfish ambition, the desire to be admired as great teachers of the law, and it only fueled that kind of thing in others. Also, it, it did not produce a good conscience or a sincere and confident faith. But you see, these are the wonderful fruits that a true and gospel ministry produces in the hearts of sinners by the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, this is what we're to aim for. This is to be our purpose, the purpose of our teaching and of our preaching in this place. This is what we are about as a church. This is what we're to be aiming for as a church. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Now, do you see how these are connected to each other? There's love. Love for God, love for one another. And where does this love spring from? From a pure heart, a heart that's been renewed and made new by the Holy Spirit. And from a good conscience, a conscience that has been relieved from the paralyzing guilt of its sin by sincere faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to preach the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is our focus. We preach Christ, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. And this is the message that the Spirit blesses to produce faith, uniting us to Christ, pacifying and cleansing the conscience, the guilty conscience defiled by sin, purifying the heart, and producing love for God and for one another. That's what it's all about. Never forget that. This is what must be kept central in the church. Everything else is either of secondary importance or as in the case of these false teachers and their speculation, 
speculations. It's a waste of yours and the church's time. Well, may God help us to keep the gospel central to all that we are and all that we do. And my friend here this morning, what about you? Has the purpose of the commandment of the instruction, the purpose of the gospel, has it been experienced by you? Do you have faith? Are you trusting this day in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for sinners? To pay the debt we owe to the justice of God for our sins. Are you trusting in him? Can you say today, you know, it was a habit of, of Whitfield when he would meet someone to ask him, do you know that your sins are forgiven? When he met, when he met um, Hal Harris for the first time, that was his first question. And Hal Harris could say, yes. Can you say that? I mean, you may, you may be the best debater about, you know, the most minute aspects of philosophical speculation, but I want to know this. Do you know that your sins have been forgiven? Have your sins been forgiven? Has your conscience been relieved from guilt through faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been made a new creation in Christ Jesus with a renewed heart evidenced by love for God, for his word, and for his people? If not, may God grant that this day you will run to Jesus Christ. Call upon him for mercy. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Bless his holy name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your powerful word. We thank you for the things that we've learned today from 1 Timothy. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to take them to heart. We pray that you would guard us from false teachers, guard us from novelty seekers, Guard us, Lord, from useless speculations that would draw our hearts away from Christ and from the aim that we are to have as your people and as your church. We cry to you to preserve us and keep us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.